Morning, friends. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, the eighth uh, book of the Old Testament. You find it right after Joshua and Judges. I want to reiterate what Pastor Brian said and invite you to lunch uh, next Sunday morning, whether you bring a bucket of soup or uh, whatever it is you, you desire to bring. If you're nervous about uh, food allergies or what other people prepare, then feel free to bring your own. Uh, but I encourage you to join us uh, next Lord's Day for our time of fellowship after the service. Ruth chapter 1 in our passage this morning, our portion is uh, the first five verses. So let's read this section together as we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of God. Let's ask for uh, his help as we look into his inerrant uh, scriptures this morning. Uh, pause with me as we uh, pray. Father, now we do pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts, that you would awaken us by your good spirit. Uh, as Tim prayed, I do ask that you would send him afresh to quicken us with your grace and allow us to see the truth that is uh, present in this introductory paragraph. Strengthen us, God, to hear your word. Strengthen me to preach it and proclaim it clearly. We entrust ourselves into your mercy, Father, and ask through Christ. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. This is how Charles Dickens uh, begins his story about the French Revolution, a tale of two cities. Um, Dickens, you recall, was also the man who gave us a Christmas carol that many of us were watching on TV just a month ago in one version of or another. Our version was uh, portrayed by that great acting troupe, the Muppets. <laughs> Yours, perhaps, was a little more serious uh, and dramatic. Well, the full quote from A Tale of Two Cities goes like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Ruth could begin with words similar to this. We could shorten it down a great deal. And we could begin the book of Ruth simply by saying it was the worst of times. It was not the best of times, 
in the worst of times. Simply, it was the worst of times. The worst of times for one family in particular. What made it so difficult? What made it the worst of times for Elimelech, his wife, and children? It was the worst of times, first of all, because of a husband's drift. As the curtain rises on the book of Ruth, we see a husband and father, a man named Elimelech. He's drifting away from the Lord. And there are three components that that go into his drift. The first was a spiritual crisis. The land of Israel is in a state of upheaval and turmoil. Verse 1 begins, and in the days when the judges ruled. And that phrase seems innocent enough until you turn back one page to the book of Judges to see what things were like. Just the page right before this, if you turn it over and look at the very last verse in the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did was right in his own eyes. That summarizes the entire book of Judges. And it also supplies the backdrop for the book of Ruth. There, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did was right in his own eyes. Uh, the period of Judges was about 180 years long. It be, began right after Joshua's death. And it stretched all the way until uh, Saul was uh, crowned the first king of Israel. Uh, It was a time when Israel turned aside from the Lord to worship idols. And as a result of Israel's idolatry, God allowed them to be defeated and oppressed by their enemies. And then they would cry out for deliverance. They would cry out for salvation. And and the Lord would send a judge, a a local military hero, who would deliver them. But then again, after they were delivered, they would again turn away from the Lord. And this cycle, if you read through Judges, repeats itself again and again. Uh, One writer described uh, this frame of time as an era of frightful social and religious chaos. Violent invasions, uh, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. If we, as you read through the book of Judges, you might think that cycle is, is really a pathetic thing, only that it mirrors our spiritual experience so closely. So Ruth is written against this dark background. It's like a dark cloud hovering at the beginning of our book, a a time of spiritual crisis. You've seen Snoopy writing his book on top of his doghouse, and he always begins the same way. It was a dark and stormy night. A shot rang out, and in a much more serious way, this is how the book of Ruth opens for us. Uh, so the first component of this drift on Elimelech's part is, is a spiritual crisis in the nation. And this leads directly to an economic crisis uh, next. The land of Israel experiences a food shortage. Verse 1 says there was a famine in the land. This was, 
This was not merely the result of an El Nino or a series of unfortunate weather systems. Any Israelite reading these verses would recognize famine as a covenant curse. Uh, Famine is what God promised to send Israel if they turned away from him. For example, listen to this warning in Deuteronomy 28. This is Moses speaking. Actually, it's the Lord speaking through Moses. And it says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And chapter 28 describes some of these a little bit later on in the chapter. It gets down to this. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed." This is, this is no mere fluctuation in seasonal weather patterns. This is, this is the very hand of God. This is God's discipline on Israel for turning away from him. This, too, is one of those cycles, although this time it's not an enemy that God sends, but a famine that God sends. And notice the particular region that's affected by this. It, We don't know how widespread it was, but we notice this in particular. As verse 1 goes on, it says, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Bethlehem, ironically, means house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. And so we see this second component, this economic crisis, this food shortage in Israel. And this leads us to a third component in Elimelech's life, uh, his drift away from the Lord, and that's a personal crisis. Elimelech, Elimelech faces a personal crisis, and we see this crisis both in his family and in his faith. First, is, uh, first note that it occurs in his family, uh, again, Uh, Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Malon means sickly, and Kilion means frail. And those names reveal to us just how badly the famine had come to affect the household of Elimelech. Uh, These names reveal something of Naomi's pregnancies obviously made difficult by a lack of food, not able to, to uh, eat well. And so she gives birth to two sons in poor health. These names reveal a household with two sons probably constantly crying because there was not enough food to eat. These names portray the exhaustion of Elimelech and Naomi caring for two sick children. These names represent the frustrated conversations that must have taken place. Elimelech, we've got to do something. 
I can't go on like this. I can't watch our sons die. So there is genuine crisis in the home of Elimelech. Not only is there a crisis in his family, there's further a crisis of his faith. In his desperation, Elimelech doesn't seek the Lord uh, and makes a series of poor choices. His name carries its own significance, like Malon and Kilion, sickly and frail. Elimelech's name uh, Elimelech's name means my God is king. Indicates that he came from a, a, a good home, a, a, a rich spiritual heritage. His parents obviously were concerned to teach him that even there was no king in Israel, the Lord, their God, was king. And Israel may have been in the grip of a spiritual crisis, but but even so, they attempted to teach him about the kingship of Yahweh, their, their covenant God. But even with that significant and hopeful name, there's a, a, a glaring absence in these first five verses. Uh, Pastor David Strain observes that in every other scene in Ruth, the name of God is mentioned explicitly. But here in this opening scene, the name of God is mysteriously absent. And Strain concludes it is a striking irony that the man named for submission to the rule and lordship of Almighty God does not acknowledge him and does not seek his face. He does not call on his name. He is the only major character in the only scene in the entire book of Ruth that fails to do so. Elimelech, with a, with a great heritage behind him, also is doing what was right in his own eyes. His crisis of faith not only is further reflected, not only is reflected in his namesake, but it's also reflected in his family's destination. Notice verse 2 again. Uh, they went to the country, uh, this is the very end of verse 2, they went to the, into the country of Moab and remained there. Moab was just a short distance away uh, from Israel. Uh, they were living uh, here in Bethlehem up at the top of the, of the slide, would have traveled across the Jordan River and down to this. I think this is modern-day Jordan now. Uh, the uh, most uh, significant thing uh, is that Moab was enemy territory. When Israel was making its way from the wilderness into the promised land, this is back in the, in, uh, the, book, uh, the first five books, uh, uh, Numbers describes their, their time in the wilderness, which would have been down here uh, in the region of Sinai, and they journeyed up here on this side of the Jordan River as they made their way up uh, the eastern bank, uh, Balak, the king, uh, hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. You might recall that that plan providentially backfired and Balaam uh, wound up blessing Israel instead. Moab resisted when Israel asked to pass through their territory. 
And when Israel was about to cross the Jordan into the promised land, this is in the era of Joshua, uh, the women of Moab seduced the men of Israel, resulting in a plague that killed many of them. In the book of Judges, uh, early in the book of Judges, Moab oppressed Israel for, for 18 years. Perhaps worst of all, Moab worshipped the god Chemosh, whose main requirement from his followers was the sacrifice of children. This is not neutral territory. This is a region of not only physical danger for an Israelite, but also of grave spiritual danger. But they had food. They had food. And in his desperation, uh, his, his desperate personal crisis, Elimelech seeks food in Moab instead of seeking the Lord his God. Instead of uh, turning to God in repentance along with the rest of the nation, uh, God, forgive us for our idolatry and remove this famine from us. He does the expedient thing. Uh, lifts his family up and moves them into enemy territory. We see the effects of this poor decision a little bit later. His crisis of faith is revealed even further in his decision to remain there. Back in, in verse 1, if you glance uh, toward the middle of verse 1, it says, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And that, of course, refers to a temporary stay, uh, uh, to stay a short length of time. He thought of it as a short-term solution uh, because of the famine. But when you get down to the verse 2, the language changes. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. means that they continued there. They, they became established there. A different version says they settled there. And, and what was meant to be a short stay stretches uh, into a 10-year stay. This was... Uh, not a, a matter of living in Texas or living in Georgia, uh, and either one is because of work opportunities, and, and you pray about it, and you move your family. This, this was not like the decisions that sometimes we make. Israel was a place of theological significance. We, we recall it was the land God gave the nation to inhabit, the, the promised land, the, the place where he promised to provide for them and, and the land he promised to bless should they remain faithful to him. But instead of remaining where God had placed him and, and Israel, and instead of crying out to God for mercy, Elimelech makes this expedient choice to lift his family and take them where there's food. Someone said this, the temptation to abandon the bread of heaven for the world's provisions is very strong, especially when the bread of heaven seems scarce. So not only is there a crisis in his family, and, and who of us hasn't had sick children and, and can't feel his frustration and, and wanting to do something to fix it, we also see how this affects his faith and makes this very poor 
decision. Men, how, how careful you and I must be. How careful we must be as husbands and fathers. We must take care not to do what's expedient, convenient, or even practical. But to seek the Lord in our decision making and choose the things that honor Him first. That glorify Him. That conform to His word that do not place our wives and our children in a position of spiritual compromise or danger. We must be so careful. Well, this is why it's the worst of times. It's because of a husband's drift. There's another reason why it's the worst of times. Because of a wife's disaster. And I think there's a cause and effect between the first and the second. I think this disaster is a direct effect of Elimelech's drift away from the Lord. Naomi experiences this as a result of her husband's drift. And there are four events that make up her disaster. The first event is bereavement. Notice verse 3 in your Bible, it begins, but, and just please pause and notice that significant word, uh, but. Reality does not live up to the dream. Reality does not live up to the dream. I'm certain that Elimelech had, had his family packed up and they made that journey seven to ten days over into enemy territory and they'd gotten uh, a place to stay and now he hoped that everything would come up roses. And then we see this, this neon light in verse 3. But. Verse 3 goes on. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. And we read this, and, and yes, no doubt it's a great tragedy. It might not strike us as out of the ordinary. After all, spouses do die. But any Israelite reading this would see not just the death, they would see the theological importance of this bereavement. And for an Israelite to die in an unclean foreign land was yet another one of God's covenant curses. To be buried in a foreign country, uh, far from the promised land, was considered uh, to be, in an Israelite's mind, the ultimate punishment for unfaithfulness. This according to the book of Amos. This, this poor choice of Elimelech, his drift from the Lord, has tragic consequences on, on Naomi. There, of course, there's no way to adequately describe the impact of losing a spouse. The, the, the sense of loss defies description. And many of you here today have walked in Naomi's shoes or watched your parent walk in Naomi's shoes. But the first event in her disaster is bereavement as she loses her husband. And then the second event of her disaster is betrayal. Uh, 
Uh, and by betrayal, I mean Malon and Kilion's betrayal. Because we see them here also, like Father, turn their back on the Lord. Look at verse 4. These took Moabite wives, her two sons, that is. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And so some think that there's, this wasn't prohibited by God's word. That Moabites are not mentioned in the countries that Israelites were not to marry. They are referring to Deuteronomy 7. Let me read it for you. So you can hear, this is what the Lord told Israel before they entered the promised land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord, uh, the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Moabite, the Moab's not mentioned. Well, that's because Moab, the territory of Moab, is outside the promised land. Surely the spirit of the law would be to marry anyone whose country worshipped false deities, like Chemosh. As a matter of fact, Later in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah do forbid taking wives from Moab. And so these marriages are not as innocent as they sound. They represent on the part of Malon and Kilian, they represent betrayal to the Lord. They, they turn away from the one true God like their father. And some of you have walked in Naomi's shoes here, too. And like Naomi, you've experienced betrayal. That is your children's betrayal. As you've watched them turn their back on the Lord and walk away. And you've watched your son or daughter turn away from the source of living water to broken cisterns that cannot satisfy, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2. So second, Naomi faces betrayal from her children. Betrayal, uh, betrayal to the Lord by marrying foreign wives. Well, there's a, a third event that comprises her disaster, and that's barrenness. Uh, Orpah and Ruth, the two Moabite wives, are not able to conceive. Again, notice verse 4. Um, it says they took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Ten year, that's a decade, of course. And, and sadly, the, the happy event that usually follows marriage does not take place. There are no children born to Malon and Kilion. 
And these women remained childless. And from last Sunday, we know why they remained childless. Because the Lord did not open their wombs and, and cause them to conceive. We, we know God creates each life in the womb. And so this tragic event is also the Lord's doing. And then finally, the fourth event that, that contributes to this disaster is a, a second bereavement. Look at verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Again, were an Israelite reading this verse, they would be left with his or her mouth hanging open. They would be stunned. Because this verse describes the worst possible fate for a Jewish woman. To be an aging widow without children and with no hope of children. So with the death of her sons, Naomi not only loses the second generation, she loses hope of a third generation through her sons. And this second bereavement leaves this remnant of an Israelite family teetering on the verge of extinction. The direct result of a husband's drift from the Lord, we see this disaster take place in Naomi's life. Bereavement, betrayal from her children, a barrenness, uh, for, for, their daughter, for her daughters-in-law in a, in a final second bereavement in the death of her sons. It was the worst of times. And the reason it was so difficult, the reason it was the worst of times is because of a husband's drift and, and the resulting wife's disaster. So the question is, is there any hope in the worst of times? Does the Word of God give us hope even amid disaster like this? Some of us here have walked a path similar to Naomi's, and we need to know the answer to that. Is there hope in the worst of times? What do these verses teach us? What does God have to say to us through the book of Ruth? Just this. That God is at work in the worst of times. This is John Piper's phrase, which I wholeheartedly uh, steal. God is at work in the worst of times. And if you, even now, are experiencing disaster like Naomi's, know this. God is at work in the worst of times. The worst of times are not wasted. How do we know? How can we be sure of this? Uh, this is a question that must be answered. Uh, uh, how can we be sure that he's at work in the worst of times? We know that God is at work in the worst of times because God is at work in all things. God did not create the universe and then step back and let it run on its own. 
He's not the watchmaker that made the watch and then left it and walked away. He is not a passive bystander. God is actively involved in everything that takes place. Uh, Hebrews describes Christ like this. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Does that sound like a passive bystander to you? That's not a passive bystander. Jesus Christ is actively involved in all that takes place. And then listen to Paul's words in Romans 11. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Have we left anything out? To Him be glory forever. Amen. We refer to this truth that God is at work in all things. We refer to that truth as providence. We talked about this at Christmas in Luke chapter 2. What is providence? Well, John Piper defines it like this. The noun providence has come to mean the act of God's purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. God's purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. God is purposefully at work in all things. Like what? He is at work in all things and in things like pregnancy. And we looked at this at length last Sunday morning. It's God who creates life in the womb. Each life in the womb. Just one verse from last Sunday, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. That's the case with every pregnancy. It is not a mere result of the reproductive process. It is God's creative act. He's at work not only in things like pregnancy, He's at work in our provisions. He's at work supplying what you and I need day by day. Listen to what His Word says in Psalm 104. And just think of the magnitude of this opening phrase. You cause the grass to grow. How does grass grow? It just happens, doesn't it? Somebody sows seed and it just kind of does its own thing. And Look at what it says. God causes the grass to grow. Something that you and I consider less than insignificant. We curse the grass, don't we? Speaking for myself, of course. I just mowed the lawn last week. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. 
and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring food uh, bring forth food from the earth he causes those things uh, again psalm 147 he covers the heavens with clouds he prepares rain for the earth he makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. And so this famine in verse 1, absolutely governed by the providence of God. I didn't put up the verses about the ice and snow. He governs that too. So he's in a, he's in a work in all things. Things like pregnancy and provisions and and pain. Even our pain. He is at work purposefully in our pain. That might be a tough pill to swallow. But God's Word says in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is at work in the worst of times because God is at work in all things. Everything is ordered by the hand of providence. Not only do we know that He is at work in all things, we know this further. He is at work for His glory and our good. Pastor Rob, how do you know? How do you know? That's a really good question. How do we know this is true? I want us to do something that my sister Kathy used to do. I might have told you about this before. I want us to take a peek at the end of the book. When I was growing up, I, I might have shared with you, she used to take me to the public library. and uh, This is when I was in elementary school. We'd each come back with our little stack of books, and I'd go put mine in my room. And I remember walking by her bedroom, and I saw her reading the end of her book. And I feeling that this was wrong, I confronted her. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm reading the end to see if I want to read the whole thing. <laughs> and so let's apply the same principle. Let's turn to Ruth chapter 4. All the way to the last paragraph, uh, Ruth 4 verse 18. And I want you to see how Naomi's disaster turns out. Verse 18 says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Here's the hero of our story, the man we'll see who eventually marries Ruth. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Naomi's grandson. 
was Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Her great-grandson was Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David was Naomi's great-great-grandson. Israel's greatest king. And the man after God's own heart. All because Elimelech and Naomi traveled to Moab where their son married Ruth. God is at work in the worst of times for his glory, for Naomi's good. Even though Elimelech drifted from the Lord, even though Kilion betrayed the Lord and married a Moabite woman, God was working through the worst of times to produce Israel's greatest human king. But that's not all, is it? Because David was the ancestor of Christ. Matthew begins his account, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Paul begins Romans like this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David. God was at work for his glory and Naomi's good and our good. Even in the worst of times, not only to produce Israel's greatest king, but also to produce the King of Kings, Israel's Messiah, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Listen to, listen to Pastor David Strain again. He's the pastor of First President Jackson, Mississippi. He says, without Elimelech's faithful decision to flee the famine, without Malon and Kilion taking Moabite wives, without the death of all three men in the home, Ruth would never have become the ancestor of Jesus Christ. The family line of the Messiah would never have been established. There would be no gospel, no salvation for the nations, no remedy for sin, no answer to those who have been subtly ensnared by sin themselves. If Elimelech hadn't taken a wrong turn and gone to Moab and Ruth hadn't married into the family. God is at work in the worst of times, for His glory and our good. So what do these first five verses teach us? What, is, what does God have to say through the book of Ruth? Just this, that God is at work in the worst of times. Because He's at work in all things. And he works in all things for his glory and our good. Let me, let me read uh, 
from David Strain one more time and listen to him kind of pull it all together. The book of Ruth is designed to teach us there is no point in our lives where God is not present and working all things together for the good of those who love him. Not in the desperation of economic catastrophe, not in the darkness of bereavement, not in the loneliness of personal isolation. There is no place in your life that God's sovereign hand of goodness and grace is not at work. Mysteriously, sometimes in unseen ways, to govern and direct all things for your everlasting good, if by grace you are a child of His. That's a good ending. And so I'd say to you, God is at work in the worst of times. And you might be wondering about uh, the times you're in because you feel like you're walking in Naomi's shoes. Could it be, friend, that you are walking in Naomi's shoes so that you will recognize you need Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, like that prodigal son uh, being fed with the pigs. What am I doing here? And perhaps those hard times have come for you too to lift up your head and say, God, I have sinned against heaven and you, and I need the payment of your son Jesus Christ to cleanse me from my sin. Could God be doing that? Yes, absolutely. If you know Christ and you are by grace a child of His, what could God be doing in the worst of times? Of course, I can't project. I can only say He's working for His glory and your good. And perhaps like Israel in the book of Judges, He has brought you through those things to... to for you to cry out to Him, and for Him to show you His grace, and uh, so you will drop to your knees and plead for His help. He could be doing that. He might be doing that. But whatever He's doing, He is working for His glory and your good. And you've got to hang on. You have got to hang in there because it will be for His glory and your good. And your good. I don't know how long it'll take, but He will do it. Some of you have uh, can look at Naomi in the past tense. I have walked in her shoes. By God's grace, I'm now on the other side. And there are Naomi's around you who need you to say to them, you hold on because you will get through it and I will help you. I will give you a hand. Here's what God did for me. They need to hear you tell them how the Lord helped you through the worst of times so they can be encouraged in their faith. Finally, we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother, don't we? 
And if you don't know who that means, I'm referring to Christ Jesus. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let me pray for us. I pray, Father, that you'd give us all hope. Some of us have walked in Naomi's shoes and and faced these crushing disasters just like she has. Some Some of us are on the other side. Some of us are right in the middle. Father, we thank you for delivering those who are through it. And for those of us still in it, give us Uh, Renew our faith and trust in your promises that you are working for your glory and our eternal good. Father, let us see in Naomi how it ends. The glorious ending of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Strengthen us with your grace today, Savior, we pray in your name. Amen.